About 1,500 miles east of Australia, in the turquoise waters of the South Pacific, lies the island nation of Vanuatu. Here and on the surrounding islands is a small but fiery religious movement. The god that these disciples worship is described as omnipotent, full of grace and eager to bless his followers with great abundance. But this god does not appear in white robes surrounded by angels, nor sitting under a Bodhi tree, nor as a burning bush. This god is a heavenly American soldier dressed in full military regalia. You're listening to Race and Tyler Talk Wikipedia, Episode 4, The Cult of John Frum. Just a disclaimer about the audio, you might hear about halfway through this episode we get an audio timing issue where Tyler will answer a question before I've even asked it. We're not sure how that happened and we're working on fixing it, but we hope you can enjoy the show anyways. Hey, Race. Hi, Tyler. How's it going? Good. How are you? I am good. I am so excited. <laughs> I am so excited, too. I have no idea what we're talking about today. And that's so. why I'm so excited, because I'm hoping to be able to do what I don't often get to do, which is introduce Tyler to something he's never heard of. <laughs> I'm so nervous. <laughs> <laughs> Although I've been thinking, I would actually be just as thrilled if you're like, oh, I know everything about this. <laughs> because then we can talk, you, you, you can have, you know, I can hear all your insights on it. So. I, ho- I hope either way. One, yeah, of those two out- one of those two outcomes is going to happen. Um, which that reminds me of one of my favorite jokes that um, my friend uh, Brian McDonald did at, um, he was a comedian at BYU and his, one of his jokes was something he'd overheard actually. And it was Will Ferrell, man, you either love him or you hate him or you like him. (laughs) (laughs) One of the three options has to be. (laughs) Um, And so my wife and I say that all the time, like something will happen and it's like, well, you know, you either love it or you hate it. Or you kind of like it. <laughs> or you like it. <laughs> so either you're going to know nothing about this or know something about it, or maybe you'll know a little bit. Or maybe a lot. Or maybe nothing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, Tyler, I'm going to say a name to you. And I okay. want you to tell me if you've ever heard of it. Okay. Are you familiar with John from F-R-U-M? F-R-U-M? No. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But so, I'm about to type him in Wikipedia unless you tell me. So yeah, tell me all about that's, that's where we're going. We're today we're talking about John Frum, um, the, the cult of John Frum and the cargo cult movement in general. Are you familiar with cargo cults at all? <laughs> no. <laughs> this sounds so spicy. I cannot oh, wait. Wait, I have to just tell you by the way that all day I've been watching a documentary on HBO about cults. Ooh. I don't know if you've been if you've heard of the vow. Yes, a little bit. I've been watching the vow, and oh, oh boy! So my head is primed for cult talk. Okay, very good. And it's it's this is um, so the the term cult. We'll we'll talk a little bit more about this. It's sometimes um, anthropologists and stuff like resist having that applied to this specific movement, and like the term cargo cult, they say is like really. Um, is that carbo cult with a B or no, cargo? No, no cargo with a g 
Oh, okay. Yeah. So anyways, we'll get into all of that. But first, I do have a get to know you question. I'm just so excited. Hey. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so our get to know you question is, um, you and I, I don't know if you remember, but we played this game a little bit when we lived in Guatemala. But I want you um, to tell me if you were a car, what kind of car would you be? And if you, if you remember playing this game, we would talk about friends and stuff and we would say, I feel like he is like a, you know, he, he's, he's no nonsense. So he's, he's, he's like a, he's, he's like a Ford F-150. Like, you, you know, he's going to do what he says. Did we ever play this with other items? Oh, like, so I feel many. like I remember yeah. doing it with like foods. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And oh, yeah, one great. of the things I like about this, um, this type of game is like, if you're, a, if you were a food or a, a car is there's so many options. Like there are thousands of different types of cars and you could be like a you could be a, a modern mustang or like a classic mustang and so I, I feel like you can actually get some kind of nuanced um kind of identifications on people you can you can yeah there's some personality cool yeah right right, right. To yeah. like oh like he's totally a scorpio <laughs> all right sure <laughs> well he's actually a ford f-150 <laughs> exactly so um, wait can you tell me your answer while i think about this my answer for you or your answer for yourself are we answering for each other let's do both oh okay good okay so my, yeah i i gotta think about this so my answer for you um and i'm not like a huge car person but um but so part of part of what i was thinking of was tyler is um you're very no nonsense like you're not um you're not like a pink hummer. And I know some pink hummers. I think we all know some pink hummers. We all know a pink hummer. Yeah. <laughs> you're very far from that. But you're also like, so, but then the other, the too far in the other direction would be like a Toyota Corolla, which is like, you know, Jerry Gergich from Parks and Recreation. <laughs> and you're definitely not that. So where I landed was like, um, and I think, I think this is still made, but like, so a sob. Are you familiar with a Saab vehicle? Yes, of course. Yes. Okay. So it's it's deceptive because if you saw it driving down the road, you'd be like, I think that might have been like a like a really nice well, like was that an Audi or something? But Saabs have like jet engines basically in them, like the engines in them are people rave about them. I know Jerry Seinfeld is like obsessed with them. And so at first glance you would be deceived and think that Tyler um you you blend in really well. Okay. But you are a high performance vehicle. <laughs> <laughs> that is such a nice thing. Oh. That's my answer. I really appreciate that. That's okay. Um I'm gonna answer for you first. I think that's yeah. that's that's where my head is going. Uh you are I think um very utilitarian. Okay. You're obviously very smart, um, but you also are not like immune to the humanities. Like you are artistically minded, you have sensitivity. I would call you a Subaru Outback. <laughs> too and close, too close. <laughs> I actually don't know what you drive, so I'm hoping that you drive a Subaru. 
I myself drive a Subaru. And so I really, I admire the line of Subaru cars. I wish I was a Subaru myself, uh, but sturdy, uh, family minded. You can fit a lot of people. Oh, I, I think it's there. I'm thinking Subaru Outback. So here's the thing. <laughs> Julie and I, our dream vehicle is a Subaru Forester. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> I should have said Forester. I second well, guess myself. You know, that's what I drive. That's what I just got. You drive a Forester? I just got a Forester two months ago. Do you love it? I am obsessed with it. I've heard My... that everyone loves them. What year did you get? So I got the 2018. Okay. And I was converted by my brother and his wife, who also just got their Forester. This, by the way, is becoming an ad for the Subaru Court, <laughs> but it's fine. <laughs> uh, and I drove theirs for a minute when I was up in Utah this year, and I was like, yeah, this is it. It's just yeah. perfect. Yeah, it's a we... perfect size. Like It fits in all the right parking spots, yep. but it's so roomy. <laughs> I mean, this really is a commercial now. It really is, but like it's four, it's four wheel drive. Yeah, and it's not like they look nice, you know. Yeah, I see them nice. and I'm like, oh, it looks good. It doesn't look like clunky or silly or any of that kind of thing. It's not showy. It's just kind of elegant. That's that's I totally agree, and I'm honored that you think I'm a super. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea that that. I mean. You guys got to get one. You really That's do. really funny. Yeah. Oh, man. Oh, wow. You nailed me on that one. <laughs> um, okay. So, shall we talk about John Frum? Let's get into it. Okay. So, um, this is such an interesting topic. It has a lot of history, a lot of geography, and then just kind of this weird sort of spiritual twist to everything. So um, to start off with the geography, Tyler, do you know where Vanuatu is? Yes, I do. Where is it? Uh, it is in the South Pacific. Okay. Capital of Vanuatu is Port Vila. Yes. <laughs> and I want to say the closest country is probably Papua New Guinea. I, 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 I both believe that that's true and am, as usual, kind of grossed out by how much you know about this. This is so much fun. You're putting me right on the spot. Uh, I am going to go to Google Maps, so just... Yeah, yeah. please do. So it's... um, I think it's... It's tough tough because these islands are kind of far apart from each other, so... Totally. What spot in the middle of the blue are we talking about? It can be a little bit difficult to pinpoint. For sure. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, just uh, as a side note, Tyler knows the capital of every nation on the planet. Which is, yeah, I do. <laughs> it's it's extremely impressive and it's a fun party trick. Sometimes I'll be reading about a just some random country like Borneo, and I just text Tyler Borneo, and then he responds with the capital, which is oh, Borneo is not a country. What? Yeah. Oh yeah, we talked about this in the first episode. <laughs> yeah, Borneo is not a country, but there are three countries on the island of Borneo: Indonesia, yeah. the capital of Indonesia is Jakarta. Yep. Malaysia, the capital of Malaysia is Kuala Lumpur. And Brunei, and the capital of Brunei is Bandar Seri Begawan. Wow. Yep. So there you go. Right <laughs> I, I, I dropped that ball real bad. We talked about uh, Borneo on the first one. Anyway, so this island, this is an island nation, Vanuatu. Like Tyler said, it's very, very small. It's um, near, or its nearest neighbors are Fiji and Papua New Guinea. Oh, okay. And it actually is the island um, that is 
at the center of the musical South Pacific. Oh, that takes place in Vanuatu? It does, but at the time it was known as the New Hebrides. Oh, okay. Yeah, of course it was. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so the New Hebrides, they were a, um, a joining British and under joining British and French colonial powers um, for a long time. And, and it's, this is where our story takes place. So the John Frum cult or the cargo cult started in Vanuatu in the 1930s. Okay. And at, it, and at its core is a belief. It's a, um, a millenarian belief. So like a, um, you know, a kind of an ushering in of a, a, a yet to come era of peace and prosperity, similar, very similar, um, or, or in the vein of like the Christian idea of a millennium that Christ will come and reign again on oh, earth. Okay. Um, and, and all cargo cults kind of share this, but this is, this is one of the most um, salient examples of a cargo cult. So it's a millenarian belief. And in the John Frum tradition, they worship a ghostly apparition of an American soldier named John Frum. Okay. He began appearing to people on the island of Vanuatu in the 30s, promising to bring them great riches, um, uh, cargo. So machinery and food and clothing and cigarettes and um, all of these kind of earthly treasures that he was going to bring it in great abundance if, if, they would, um, if they would follow him Whoa. and pray to him. Yeah. So um, I've got a few quotes from, there's a, a really great article if you want to read more about this. It's called In John They Trust. Okay. And it's by Smithsonian Magazine. It's one of the first Google results that'll come up on it. But um, so one, one kind of leader in this movement, which is still exceedingly active today, um, said, John Fram came to help us get our traditional customs, like our kava drinking, our dancing, to get all of that back because the missionaries and colonial governments were deliberately destroying our culture. So John Frum appears and says, um, I'm here to help you kind of throw off the shackles of this Western, um, you know, these, these colonial powers, these people who are making you, you know, put away the traditional clothing and quit doing your traditional dances and stuff. And if you will follow me and do these things, then I'm going to come with plane loads and, and boatloads of, um, of cargo. And so um, this is, again, kind of a writ large, that's what a cargo cult is, is, is a belief in, in some sort of a, of a figure or a period to come where there's going to be this great imp, influx of, of wealth. Oh, and Okay. Yeah. Have there been others of those? There have. So most, a lot of them were in the, um, were in the South Pacific and more um, kind of, what's the word I'm looking for? Just really, really remote islands. But there have been also um, cargo cults or, or, a, or a really related kind of millenarian um, idea has also um, come in the, um, in the American Indian tradition. So there's a, a Paiute, uh, a Paiute from the, the Paiute tribe leader named Wovaka, um, who was alive from, um, 
the 1850s to the 1930s. Okay. And he was a Paiute religious leader who um, had, it, it wasn't quite a cargo cult, but it was this um, sort of a similar thing where um, if we return to our, if, to our traditions, then, then our ancestors are going to, you know, throw off the, the white man and all of our old traditions will come back oh, okay. and we'll, be, we'll live in this kind of um, sort of new, new rebirth into our traditions. Wow, okay. And so, yeah, and actually the, um, so Wavaka was a big proponent. He brought about a resurgence of what was called the ghost dance. Okay which was, was a, a, as I understand it, and we are probably swimming way over our heads <laughs> and all of this. So if anybody has corrections, please send them in. But um, that was at least part of the, the, um, the purpose of what was called the ghost dance um, was sort of a plea to, um, for a return to the traditional life and kind of relief from, from outside oppression. Cool, okay. And that was what, um, there was great fear of these ghost dances and that is what, caused the um the massacre at wounded knee oh okay in american history was the ghost dances were considered to be seditious and had been outlawed and um and these um these native people were doing it at, at wounded knee and were fired on by american soldiers and oh wow you know, some, where is that yeah some wounded yeah knee. kansas so, I should know like that. the middle of the country. I believe the Great so. Plains um, tribe. Okay. No, South Dakota. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. South Dakota. It's a really shameful um, kind of moment in American history because, first of all, um, the ghost dance was a, a peaceful thing. This was an already subjugated people um, trying to, you know, perform a, oh, a, yeah. a ritual that bound them to their ancestors that you know, and, and they were fired upon kind of indiscriminately. Um, over 250 men, women, and children, um, Lakota of the Lakota people were, um, were killed. And, um, disgustingly, um, 20 soldiers were awarded the Medal of Honor. You are kidding. (laughs) No, for their participation. Um, it was at the time kind of thought of as like, um, or, you know, you can imagine in the yellow newspapers of the time being written as like this huge, you know, uprising was put down right. by brave soldiers. Right, right. But, um, yeah. yeah. If you actually, if you've seen the movie um, Hidalgo, have you seen Hidalgo? No. Is that about Wounded Knee? Well, it's it sort of takes place a little bit in Wounded Knee. I it's, thought it was taking kind of place in Mexico is what I thought. Well, it's, it's a, kind of a cheesy Disney movie about a, this American cowboy with a horse named Hidalgo. <laughs> I think it's a true story who went and participated in like this big overland um, horse race across like the Sahara. Oh, okay. <laughs> anyway, the reason I know about it is because I saw it when I was probably yeah, yeah. Or something like that. And, and, and at the beginning um, it depicts wounded knee and it depicts it pretty accurately as like this kind of horrifying thing. And I'd never really, that was one of my first exposures to it. Oh, I don't even think we studied wounded knee in school. That's kind of shameful. What um yeah. what time period was that or like do you know who the president would have been? Wounded Knee was in eighteen ninety, so that would have been Oh like McKinley was nineteen hundred. It might have been like Grover Cleveland or somebody. That's yeah. no idea, honestly. <laughs> yeah, let's see. Grover Cleveland was elected in eighteen eighty five, so 
Um, yeah, he was. He would have been not him, than he, Benjamin he Harrison. Harrison. So wait, what year did I say it took place? Eighteen ninety. Is that right? Yeah. So he he, he um, McKinley is was famous, or Grover Cleveland was famously the presidential terms that oh, didn't they didn't match up. up. Yeah. So whoever President Inter Cleveland. Yeah, was, that was Benjamin Harrison. Benjamin Harrison. So so, so um, gave the. Yeah, Cleveland was out in March of 1889. Okay. So, yeah. There we go. Great little, great anyway, little piece so, of history so that, for America. That, <laughs> great little that? piece of history for America. Yeah, right. Um, but that's kind of an example of of, of a, at least a, a parallel phenomenon where you have a, a subjected people or a subjugated people and there's kind of this almost nationalistic um, movement towards a savior that's going to restore them to to the before time, like before you know this invasion and before this kind of overthrow of, of their country. right, right, and the um uh, the rise of nationalism in a subjugated people is nothing new, but the fact that it's tied to a religious significance and like yeah. kind of a new doctrine of there's going to be this coming of well, that's so fascinating that it would happen at really two points is. in the globe that really were not in contact. Well, and, and the thing that's so interesting to me about um, the John Frum movement is the paradox of it of like, so Wovaka, for instance, is, uh, certainly a, a different but, um, but similar in many ways movement. He was like, we're going to be restored to our old ways of doing things and it's going to be this beautiful like, um, return to um, our our kind of native land, whereas and so it was a very kind of native centered vision of a future, um, and I'm sure that's quite reductive, but at least on a certain level, that's what what he was talking about. Whereas the John Frum movement, its central figure is is an American, American soldier, soldier, no. and 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 the 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 millennium, the bounty, like this this heaven on earth that's coming is all transistor radios and coca-cola and um blue jeans wow yeah and so so to get kind of into the the some of the discussion that's gone on with like anthropologists and people who are um kind of trying to discuss perhaps um origins or or influences of of this thought which like i said is is very much alive today Mm. um it, one of them is the idea that there's actually some similarities between um, between American culture, Western culture in general, and um, the culture of the people on Vanuatu and similar islands who kind of um, saw this emerge, um, this type of movement, these cargo cults emerge. So in in Vanuatu, for instance, there is this idea of the big man system, okay. and it's centered on trade. And so, for instance, if I come to your village or visit you in your home and I bring you a gift, um, you know, a fruit or, a you know, a roasted pig or whatever it might be, um, part of your value and cultural standing and, and all of that comes from you being able to give me a gift in return. Mm, okay. And, and so there's a big focus kind of on... Um, it, 
what in in some ways is is kind of analogous to materialism and consumerism yeah so and and so there's there's a lot of um display and you know keeping up with the joneses almost of yeah. an idea and if you can't if you can't um reciprocate a gift and and demonstrate that you are you know generous and um and have the means to to reciprocate um the term that i came across was you're considered like a rubbish man like a garbage oh person. okay if you don't because, have anything because not, because you don't have anything to give which not only says you're poor but also you know you're not generous and you can't contribute to this like circle oh of wow so think of that kind of mindset and then all of a sudden literally falling from the skies are um men with flashlights and wristwatches yeah. and cigarettes and chocolate and coca-cola yeah. and all of this stuff and so one of the theories that is put forward that i found um, particularly um, compelling was these people were they were um they, the theorist calls it value dominance so like within their own way their own cultural system of of importance and status they were getting blown out of the water. Because what do you give to an American GI who shows up and has a radio and, you know, all of that stuff. Like if, if there were going to be some sort of cultural exchange um, or gift exchange, you, you yeah. lose. And so um, a lot of cultures experiencing some sort of culture shock can't compete in the new system, perhaps. But these people couldn't even compete in what they would have considered their system. Wow, yeah. Yeah. And so these, these white people show up and start beating you at your own game. And that's certainly going to have some, um, some impacts. And so the idea that came up or one of the suggested um, kind of genesis of this is our rituals and our, our belief will cause a more advanced civilization to come and deliver these goods to us. So kind of reclaiming their role and, and their ability to, um, to kind of get, um, this abundance um, and, and to claim it for themselves. So the way, where it stands today, so that's, that's um, it started in the thirties and, and then it was, as you can imagine, like gasoline on a fire when in the thir uh, in the forties, Jap first Japanese and then American soldiers just showed wow, up. Okay. And, and as you pointed out, so it, looking at a map, um, were, were you correct that like, um, Papua New Guinea is probably the closest Papua nation. New Guinea is closest. quite close. Looks like the Solomon Islands and Fiji are closer, but it's all okay. very close by. And then Australia is like to the west. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that was, I think, I think that's part of um, what contributes to this, at least in my mind, it makes a lot of sense that, so these islands are extremely um, isolated. Mm -hmm. They're way out there and very small and even if you wanted to get to the or so um even if you could get to them for a lot of reasons there's not or there's not a lot of reasons to go yeah. there um until um japan and the united states go mm -hmm. to war and they go to war at a time when um m air travel and all of this has really advanced and so um as like a study of of the battle for of the Pacific during World War II will show you like suddenly these little tiny islands, a lot of which were unpop like weren't even um, inhabited, yeah. suddenly became extremely strategically significant. Yeah, okay. 
Because if you can build an airstrip on Iwo Jima, some random little island, and I forget if Iwo Jima was inhabited, I believe that it was, but these little volcanic islands, um, you know, the size of like, you know, um, Denver, Colorado, like a they're very small, island, yeah, or even smaller in some places, just these little little islands. But if you can build a if you can build a runway and put gas t- uh, put you know refueling tanks on it then all of a sudden your planes flying from Hawaii can stop there uh, and you can, you now suddenly have a foothold to launch attacks on, on mainland Japan. I had never even realized that, that they were kind of like stepping stones almost. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's that, um, the term that, that historians use is island. Oh, okay. So, I think I thought that yeah, they, they were they, trying to fight on a battlefield that was just like <laughs> not on anybody's territory. Yeah, no, it was it was mostly like they realized, okay, these islands are really important because if they can establish an yeah, here wow. and start marshalling troops, um, we're we're in trouble. And so, so the Japanese would take these volcanic islands and fortify them and dig in, and then the Americans would land. And Iwo Jima was one of the bloodiest battles of World War II, and it was precisely because of that. It was very strategically uh-huh. significant. The Japanese um, got there, fortified the heck out of it. And it was just kind of a, a, a meat grinder to take it back. And then, um, but it was so strategically significant that it was, um, oh, okay. it was worth it to do. So because of that, kind of the, the realities of the, of the geography and the way that the war was going to work, um, these islands are suddenly being visited. So if you can picture for the first time, or at least um, for the first significant time, you now have all these white people mm-hmm. walking around on an island and yeah. they have jeeps <laughs> and radios right. and flashlights and machine guns. And so it was this huge culture shock. And one of the, um, I've got a, a, an excerpt here that I'll read that I think sums it up nicely. So it says with the end of the war, the military abandoned the air bases and stopped dropping okay. cargo. In response, charismatic individuals developed cults among remote Melanesian populations that promised to bestow on their followers deliveries of food, arms, jeeps, etc. The cult leaders explained that the cargo would be gifts from their own ancestors or other sources, as had occurred with the outsider armies. In attempts to get cargo to fall by parachute or land in planes or ships, islanders imitated the same practices they had seen the military personnel use. Cult behaviors usually involved mimicking the day-to-day activities and dress of U.S. soldiers, such as performing parade ground drills with wooden or salvaged rifles. The islanders carved headphones from wood and wore them while sitting in fabricated control towers. They waved landing signals while standing on improvised runways, and they lit signal fires and torches to light up lighthouses. (laughs) (laughs) He's a... And that's so, amazing. What was that? Yeah, it's amazing. And so, if um, on if you find yourself in Vanuatu on February fifteenth, still that is John today. Friday, wow, okay. still. And there will there is a parade, and there are drills, and they come out wearing kind of recreations of um, okay. army clothes, and it's a celebration of their belief that he will return again. Um, in twenty eleven. Um, there was, uh, well, as, as recently as 2011, Vanuatu had an ambassador to Russia who was not only a member, but kind of considered like a president of this movement. So it's still Vanuatu. going on. 
it's still going on and it's not necessarily like a yeah how popular is this Uh, it's quite popular it's not the most popular um religion necessarily religious movement but it is it is um well thought of and it is um and it is still okay still and is it um you think it's treated very seriously by the people or is it more just like tradition at this point Oh no, um, it's 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 treated as quite serious. So there are a few charismatic kind of leaders in the movement. It's it's not a centralized movement. Um, there's just kind of adherents, and then there's kind of leaders who rise up, and there have been they've developed factions, and certain kind of um, leaders teach one you know kind of thing, and they'll they'll be schisms and stuff. But it, it is taken very very seriously. They said that. Um, in, in these interviews that I read, they say he is, he is our God. He's more powerful than Jesus. Our, um, our leader on the island goes to the um, volcano and speaks with him oh. on a regular basis. And yeah, and so, um, and as a matter of fact, to the island, let, or the volcano, let me find the volcano. Um, so there's a volcano um, in Vanuatu on the, the big island in Vanuatu called Yasur, which means God in their language. And in the interview, um, they said it is the house of, of John from. That's where John from lives is in this volcano. And um, so one of the interesting things that I, I kind of failed to mention was so in 1941, there was a big happening with this. It had kind of been an idea that was around. And then, as you can imagine, in 1941 is when um, outsiders really started showing up and that kind of excited um, this movement. And um, there was a big, a big push and people took all of their currency and threw it into the ocean. And they they quit going to the like westernized oh. schools that had developed. They quit teaching people to read, um, to read, and they because they wanted to return to like a traditional um, lifestyle. So they they went back yeah. to the traditional clothing and all of that stuff. And that's still um, at least an element of of John from belief today. Is I don't think it's necessarily rejection but just kind of an acknowledgement that like all of this is, is going to go away and we're going to go back to um, living the way that we, that we used to live. Wow. And (laughs) yeah, (laughs) there's so much to talk about with regards to that too. I just, I, and I, I know that we saw this in Guatemala and I I think about this all the time, but I think there's such a sad, um, like, kind of consequence of globalization which is you know the new people come in they're bringing all these different things you have all these things but the traditions of the ancestors get lost you know and it's always a trade-off of like do we keep our traditional clothing and languages or do we get the coca-cola and all the mcdonald's and stuff and it's sad that like every culture Right, has kind of had to have that, you know, that falling away. Sure, and and, and sometimes it's, um, and maybe this is an understatement, but it's it's, it's, not, a it's not a choice. Yeah, right? it's like, <laughs> like off, clearly in the case of the United States, it was like forced. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but but even even in a more kind of, um, if you look at a more peaceful 
version of that, like you said, sometimes it's just, okay, now all of the progress is happening yep. in English or by yeah. people who wear this certain clothes. And so even though nobody's, you know, going to kill me if I quit wearing or mm-hmm. quit speaking the way I want to, that's just kind of the, like the, this entropy where it's just, this is just where it's, it's where kind it's of all like, if you don't learn English, you're I'm not going to be able to participate in the marketplace. And then what are you going to do? You know, exactly. I think it's such a sad reality that globalization, right. like, can bring a lot of good to people but at the same time you lose so much of the color and variety that comes with the different cultures of the world definitely and and um and i yeah i remember thinking about that like in guatemala there's there is a push in some places to kind of revitalize the the lost languages or the languages that are Uh very close to being lost but even if they do come back and it's it's kind of spoken again, all of the the history and the kind of just there's it's there's so late. much loss yeah. that goes on and it's mm-hmm. yeah it's too late and it's so sad um, and so it it does it makes perfect sense that if you are in a culture that is threatened with this um, even in this case it really wasn't a violent existential threat necessarily like these these islanders weren't um, there certainly were were loss of life and some some serious catastrophe on some of these islands, but for by and large, they oh, were yeah. kind of just spectators. They just they just saw you know like all mm-hmm. these planes and ships show up, and so what theirs was they were you know lucky enough to avoid a lot of the violence and um, and and suffering of the war, but they were still it was still this mm-hmm. huge existential yeah. threat where um, you know they were essentially living in the in the mm-hmm. the Bronze Age on these islands and then all of a sudden um there's radios that can you know communicate all this distance and these boats that are powered by engines and stuff and so it makes sense that there was kind of a spiritual aspect to that oh totally who first saw it. did um did john from himself was he associated with the movement or was this like long after he passed away that is a great question, and it's really hard to say. There is no um, consensus on oh, if John okay. Frum ever even existed. Um, one of the um, hypotheses of the name is that he is John Frum. From America. John it's not Frum a common Frum. last name, right? Yeah, no, yeah, it's not really a last name. So John Frum America, and it's just kind of been boiled down to John Frum. There's, there's other sort of similar figures um, in different on different islands, all um, kind of in a very very similar vein. But like there's a there's a figure sometimes referenced mm, okay. called Tom Navy. Um, but yeah, there's 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 questions. Some of the the theories were that um, that there was an American soldier who showed up at some point and really impressed some people, and it kind of spawned a story. There's also a tradition, I think I mentioned it earlier, that they wanted to get back to drinking kava, which is like a mildly hallucinogenic um, drink that um, Islanders use. There's a a thought that um, this was kind of a kava-induced spirit vision that somebody had. Um, And, you know, this this isn't the podcast where we try and solve all the mysteries (laughs) of the universe and answer the... The question that's of the theology. other one. that's our yeah. other podcast um, <laughs> but but for whatever whatever reason that it came about it is a sincerely held religious belief on these islands and um 
And there's also a, 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 uh, an account of a native man dressing in American military uniform and going around kind of trying to fool people and make promises. And that's a potential beginning. But I think as with a lot of religious um, kind of movements looked at in a historical context, it's way less, or for me, it's way more interesting to ask, but why did it spread yeah. so mm-hmm. fast? Like why, mm-hmm. yeah, why did it stick? Because, you know, you, a lot of people can say a lot of things and a lot of beliefs can pop up, but the ones that stick around for a long mm-hmm. time and really influence people, clearly there's something there that's speaking to them, you know, and the, the, the truth, big T, small T, whatever of, of the movement is way secondary to the fact that like a lot of, yeah, it's like kind of who cares who John from what, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. So um, to kind of wrap it up in a kind of the strangest <laughs> twist on oh, this that I found was so um, in the fifties or sixties there well, so there was, there's a story on one of these islands, um, a, a, a traditional belief that the son of a mountain spirit traveled over the seas to a distant land. There he married a powerful woman, and in time he would return to them. So this was a traditional belief. He was sometimes said to be the brother oh, okay. of John Frum, this man. So this was kind of already like a cultural myth that existed that, yeah, there was this spirit from our island that went far away like this god figure and married a powerful woman and is going to come back one day and bless us with all these riches and in the 50s or 60s um this belief became personified can you guess who um they believe that 50s or 60s and they believed it was a specific person yes they said oh we found our spirit oh my if you're gonna tell me it was like jfk or something <laughs> i don't know uh JF, jfk is a great prince guess philip. it's prince philip oh man prince philip is is still revered as a, a god on on um some of the prince philip near queen vanuatu, elizabeth's husband in southern vanuatu queen elizabeth very, very much alive, alive today today husband wow yeah, is believed to be a divine being. So he visited, or in the 50s or 60s, when uh, they, were, they were, so they were a married couple, she was the queen. Um, and I don't think he visited the island until the 70s, but somehow they made this connection. They saw Prince Philip and were like, that's got to be him. This is our, um, this is the, our, this spirit wow. of our island that went and um, married. So he is, if you, if you Google some of this stuff, so go to Google images and search cargo yeah. cult and John from and the Prince Philip movement that I've talked about. And you'll see some interesting things. You'll see huge satellite dishes made out of bamboo, um, r- fake, fake runways, fake radio towers, all sorts of things. And then um, on some of the other things you'll find is these Islanders holding these pictures of Prince Philip um, who they revere as a, as a wow. God on earth. Thank you for listening. We only have one footnote on this episode, and it's a clarification on what kind of car Tyler would be. Do yourself a favor and Google the 1963 Saab 96. It's a beautiful classic car, and it encapsulates Tyler very well. 
two of the advertising slogans that Saab has used over the years are the most intelligent cars ever built and it's a pity other cars aren't built this way and I feel that way about Tyler. Finally, if you want to be notified about future episodes or send us a message, you can do that. Our Twitter handle is at Race and Tyler Pod. Instagram handle is at Race and Tyler Talk Wikipedia. And you can email us at Race and Tyler Talk Wikipedia at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.